The reading this morning is Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 20. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on people who are ill, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. morning everybody happy easter my name is pete snow i'm one of the ministers here it's very good to be able to celebrate with you on uh, easter sunday you might be wondering what's going on with the ending of mark's gospel i asked sarah to read it just the way she did just so that there's nothing to hide i, I haven't got anything to hide from you i don't think the translators of the bible have either and i'll explain in just a moment what i think is going on let's pray shall we father in heaven hallelujah christ is risen and uh, we pray that this morning you'd take that statement and fill it with meaning and, and truth and appropriate emotion for us. If Christ is risen from the dead, then please convince us and tell us what it means for our lives. We pray from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
The Sun newspaper is reporting this morning that we're on the verge of nuclear war. Did you know that? Apparently North Korea have got more uh, weapons than anybody might have thought before. And that, that someone's written a piece in the Sun newspaper saying this could be it. We might actually be on the brink of nuclear war. Easter Day 2017. Of course, they couldn't just leave the story there. So um, uh, they tried to put a, a positive spin on it, which was this. Um, it's Easter Day, so don't worry about it just for today. Have some chocolate. Yeah, I think it deserves a laugh, doesn't it? But I mean, it's also a bit awkward. That is not a long-term strategy. You cannot ignore nuclear war by eating some chocolate for a day. I don't think the problem's going to go away. What hope is there for a world which might be on the brink of nuclear war, whether or not that is true? What hope is there? If God sent an angel to earth on an Easter Sunday, what would the angel say? We're going to have a look at Mark's account of what the angel said and see if there is hope for the world. I hope to show you there is hope because it's Easter Sunday and Jesus is risen. Just before we get there, I do want to just address this strange ending to Mark's gospel. If you've got your Bibles open, and I'd love, love you to have them open so you can be persuaded, you'll see that verses 1 to 8 seem to be fairly straightforward narrative. And um, then there's a, there's a funny ending. It seems like the, the, the tone is a bit off. Uh, the women run away from the tomb. They're scared. There's a note of panic as the gospel ends. And maybe that's it. Oh, but then we're told the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses don't have verses 9 to 20, and you get an extra sort of fast-forward version of events. Now, the, the virtually unanimous verdict of just about every biblical scholar is that Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. Do you see there? They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Strange as that might seem, fear has been a big theme in Mark's gospel, and it seems like he did. Mark did indeed intend to end things there. The two reasons for that are, just, just so you know, people do sometimes ask me about this when they read through Mark, uh, the date and the style. Uh, the, the date of the manuscripts, the earliest ones we have, the two best complete New Testaments, are from the 4th century AD, and neither of them have anything beyond verse 8. So one of them is in the British Museum. It finishes at verse 8. So as far as the earliest ones are concerned, they don't seem to have it. The, the, the longer endings start to creep in later on in the 5th century onwards, but the earliest ones don't have it. So the date seems to suggest it's not there. And then the style. You might have noticed it as Sarah read it out. It just seems to change. It fast-forwards. You get slightly higher, loftier language, as if maybe a committee of well-meaning church people wrote it, and they thought, oh, it did end on a bit of a funny note, so we'll just add some extra material in. And you can tell the style changes more obvious in the Greek if you translate it from verses 1 to 8 into 9 to 20. It does shift and change and different words are used. So the date and the style seem to be different. So for my money and just about any other Christian uh, Bible scholar, Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. But we wanted the whole thing read out just so there's nothing to hide. It feels a bit like airing your, your laundry in the front garden of your house where everyone can see your underwear. You know, But there's nothing to hide about the Bible. These are the most sensitive, questionable parts, and I think it's fairly easily explained. Anyway, we're here to talk about the resurrection, so we should do that, shouldn't we? Uh, you'll see on the back of your service sheets, there's, there's really two points I want to talk about just for a moment or two with you. First of all, what happened on Easter Sunday? And secondly, why did it happen? What happened? Why did it happen? Hopefully very straightforward. Let's begin with what happened, shall we? Verse 6, that's really where we're going to focus, verses 6 and 7. Don't be alarmed, this angel said. 
you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. So from that short couple of statements, we get the two majestic truths of the Christian faith. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, and he has risen. Do you see? Jesus the Nazarene, he was crucified. He has risen. Just worth saying, sometimes people um, try and argue against the Christian faith by saying, well, maybe that Jesus the Nazarene, he was crucified on a Roman cross, and he didn't die. Perhaps he's, he swooned. There's something called the swoon theory, where he was um, unconscious because he was in such a lot of suffering and pain, and the Roman soldiers didn't realize that he was just unconscious, not dead, and they laid him in a tomb, and, oh, he managed to come back to life. There's a few things that we could say about that medically and historically, about the way Romans crucified people very effectively. But you see, the angel's message here says he was crucified. Jesus the Nazarene, he, he really was. That guy on Good Friday, that was him. He was crucified. There was just a couple of other details worth noting here. First of all, uh, it's reported by women. Might not seem, not much, seem much to us in our day and age. The, the first three people who found the empty tomb were women. But I think we would have let out a gasp if we read this 2,000 years ago when it was first written. <laughs> what? Three women found the empty tomb. Because it was such a prejudiced society, this wouldn't have got the Christian story very far at all. We know this because um, the antagonists of Christianity used to rail against the fact that women were chosen as the eyewitnesses, or reported as the eyewitnesses. One particularly angry man was called Celsus, who was a Greek philosopher in the second century AD, very anti-Christian philosopher. He listed arguments against, against Christianity, and one of his favorites that he believed was the most telling was the women discovered the tomb, didn't they? And as we all know, he says, women are hysterical. <laughs> Many of his readers agreed with him. You know, For them, to have female eyewitnesses discovering the body, it just totally discredits the whole story. That's not going to stand up in court. Do you see what the significance of that is? Either it didn't happen, and it was a really badly made-up tale, that like goes against the grain of every bit of cultural analysis that the early Christians could have done, or it really was women who discovered the body. I think that's the only possible explanation for, for the people who were there at first sight, is that they were in fact women, and that's why we're told there were three women discovering the body. The other thing that tells me Jesus of Nazareth was crucified is that there were spices. So these women come laden with um, oils and, and herbs and things to anoint a tortured, broken, crucified corpse. They don't come expecting a resurrected Messiah. They were expecting a dead body too. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, and that's the first thing the angel says on Easter Sunday. But the second thing that happened, of course, is that Jesus of Nazareth has risen. Just look again with me at verse 6. You're looking for Jesus of Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. They've gone to the tomb and worried about this massive stone, which would have been just enormous, and uh, they're worried about how they're going to roll it away. So they weren't expecting that, but it seems to be moved by the time they get there. And then there's this guy sitting on the side of the tomb, like the shelf where they would have put the body. And the other Gospels tell us, yes, this really is an angel. And Mark's dropping a hint with the type of clothing he's wearing. You get an angel in the Bible when something supernatural is going on. Sure enough, the angel says, yeah, he's risen. It's a short statement, isn't it? He has risen. And yet quite a lot hangs on it. 
It's actually one word in the original Greek language, agerthe, he has risen. Just one word, he has risen, past event. What a change that made to Christianity that morning. One word, agerthe, he has risen. What a, what a change that makes possibly to the entire world. He has risen. The whole of Christianity is stacked on top of that word. He has risen. Some friends of ours had a, their first baby born late last year. The baby was never very well. She died eight weeks old from spinal muscular atrophy. And we had a, a message from them on Mother's Day. You know, we sent them some, uh, some love as much as we could in a message. And they just texted back and said, thank you so much. Uh, we've been to her graveside this Mother's Day. We've, we've wept into the soil by the side of her grave. And uh, our hearts are hurting very deeply. What would you give as a parent to have an angel come and sit at the side of your child's grave and say, she's risen. Egefe. Easter Sunday. I want to say to you this morning that the whole of grief and death and Christianity, and in fact the world, turns around on the angel's word that says, Egerthe, he's not here anymore. Egerthe, he's risen. Nineteen times in Mark's gospel, the word Egerthe is used. It's almost always miraculous. So in chapter 2, Jesus goes to a paralyzed man, Egerthe, get up, I've healed you. In chapters 4 and 5, he says to a dead girl, Egerthe, get up little girl, I'm going to bring you back from the dead. Chapter 10, as we were looking at a couple of days ago, he says to a blind man sitting at the side of the road, Egerthe, blind man, get up, I'm about to restore your sight. Egerthe. Here, 19th time, end of Mark's gospel, he says it about himself. Egerthe. I'm not here anymore. I've done it to myself. I've applied the miracle to myself. Historically, therefore, what I'm arguing to you, even if you're the most skeptical, secular, modern person in London, I'm arguing today this is a historical event. He really has risen from the dead. I was given a, a survey from the Daily Telegraph this week that says 23% of UK Christians don't believe that Jesus was historically raised from the dead. 23%. So, so 23% of people who call themselves Christians in the UK don't believe that. Gosh, I don't know how the rest of Christianity stacks up for you if, if you're part of the 23% that doesn't believe that. I think that there's a discontinuity there that can't hold water. And yet people seem to. I want to argue today that the angel's words are true. He has risen. And therefore, it's a matter of historical importance that you decide, did it happen or not? I was speaking at Imperial College um, last term in the autumn to some students, a mixture of skeptical and persuaded Christians, and, and three girls came up to me afterwards and they said, thank you for your talk, but we're Imperial College biologists, and I have to tell you, dead people don't come back to life. And um, I smiled at them and I said, um, of course, I appreciate what you're saying. I'm not a biologist myself, but I agree with you. Dead people don't come back to life. What I am is a historian by training. That was my first degree. And I said, historically, what I'm persuaded by is that something happened. How do you get from a dead, defeated religious movement where the guy's just been killed off in the most brutal way, all the followers are scattered, and the only people willing to come and sheepishly anoint the body are three women, 
to something which explodes onto the Mediterranean scene and takes the whole Roman Empire by storm, such that in a couple of hundred years the Roman, Empire, uh, Roman Emperor is a Christian. How do you get from there to there historically? Something happened. You need an answer for that historically as well as biologically. So that's what happened. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and he has risen. Now, just in the couple of moments that remain, I want to, want to tell you uh, why that happened. A couple of people said to me this week, um, just in the congregation, I, I love Easter Sunday, I'm really looking forward to it, it's great to celebrate the resurrection. But I really struggle to know why it's such good news. It obviously is, but why? So let me show you four little glimmers of light that the angels' statements reveal. And uh, there are many more. There are, in fact, many more, which um, our children start with a, was a vivid illustration of and we could comb through the bible and we could discover many more reasons why the resurrection happened and things which flow from it but just for the time being i want to uh, content ourselves with four that come out of the angel's words in verse seven okay so why did it happen for full forgiveness to go before us for face-to-face reunion and for fulfillment i've tried to i tried to start all of them with an f to make it slightly more manageable and nearly managed it to go before us you have to work hard with the second one Okay, so firstly, for um, full forgiveness, let's have a look at verse 7. The angel's words are brief but full of meaning. He says, go, tell his disciples and Peter. On the surface, that doesn't sound like much, does it? That's just an instruction to go and talk, talk to some people. But dig a little deeper. Have the whole gamut of Mark's gospel in mind, and those words are full of meaning. Go and, go and tell his disciples who fled from him when he needed them most, and Peter... Why does Peter get named? Because he was the worst deserter. He was the one who who came closest to staying with Jesus and then backed away when it all got a bit too hot. Jesus says, go and tell those guys that I'm alive again and I want to see them. Can you imagine what Jesus could have said to the disciples and to Peter when he saw them in Galilee? You backstabbing cowards! Where on earth were you when I needed you most? Peter, you said you were going to die with me and then you just nicked off when a servant girl had a go at you. But how full of grace the words are. Go and tell his disciples and Peter, I want to see him. And all is forgiven. There's full forgiveness. For a a brief um, and uh, steep learning curve in my adult life, I I worked in a prison, uh, a low-security prison. And um, obviously you spend your day-to-day jangling keys and locking doors behind you. But um, there were occasionally happy moments when you get to release somebody. And the term is over and the penalty is paid, and you get to hand back you know, their wallet and the things that they came in with and the couple of items they handed over at the desk. You give them back to them, you open the door for the last time, and their family are there to meet them. When a, when a prisoner walks free from a prison like that, it's done. The penalty is paid, the term is over, the punishment is finished. And when Jesus walks free from his prison cell, his tomb on Easter morning, the penalty is paid, the punishment is done. There's nothing left. And of course, in Christianity, Jesus pays that penalty for everyone who believes in him. So he walks free from the, the prison cell on your and my behalf if we believe it. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is this, um, Mark 16, verse 7, because a couple of years ago, I was leading a Christianity Explored course with a couple. And one of them, a, a Russian girl, 
she, we did seven weeks of Christianity Explored all the way through Mark's Gospel. She'd read the thing diligently, and I'd, I'd been at pains to try and explain things as best I could. And we got to the week seven, Mark chapter 16, verse seven, but basically the last verse in the whole Gospel. She, she read this and went, wait, go and tell Peter. Peter, he was forgiven. Does this mean I can be forgiven? And she looked at me with the most accusing look and said, why didn't you tell me this in week one? <laughs> I love that because although it was down to my own inadequacy, I hadn't explained things properly, she finally got it. Yes, you can indeed be forgiven. As Jesus walks from the tomb, it's over, it's done. So why did it happen for full forgiveness? We've got to pick up the pace. Secondly, uh, under this point, it happened so that he would go before us. Let's have a look at verse 7 again. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. So Jesus was going from Jerusalem in the south, 80 miles north to Galilee. And um, there, of course, that's significant because Galilee was not the capital city full of the elite and the rulers and the religious leaders. It was full of the ordinary people who would rather got forgotten in Israel's history. So there's already a statement about who the resurrection message is for. But I think here perhaps we're to hear a dim echo which the rest of the Bible will fill out that Jesus is going ahead of us, not just into Galilee, but into heaven. There's a, a Portuguese explorer called Vasco de Gama, and he was the first Portuguese um, explorer to really make it around the, the South African Cape uh, and into the Indian Ocean, so he, the, the Cape of uh, Good, uh, sorry, the Cape of Storms, as it was then known, which go, uh, connects the Atlantic Ocean to the Indian Ocean, if you can picture it in your mind. He was the first guy to really go there, all the way to India, and then come back. Previously, it had been this impassable geographical feature, the Cape of Storms. It was feared by navigators and sailors. And yet Vasco da Gama manages it in the early 1500s. And today, it's not known as the Cape of Storms. It's known as the Cape of Good Hope. Because what beforehand was this inaccessible, impenetrable landscape suddenly becomes this place of return, place of promise, a, a new land for us to explore. Jesus goes before us into heaven, and he, do you see how that takes all the sting and the, the difficulty and the storm out of death? It becomes the Cape of Good Hope. It's a place that I can go to. So why did the resurrection happen? For full forgiveness, so that Jesus could go before us. And thirdly, for face-to-face -face reunion. I think for me personally, the hardest um, part of going to a funeral and indeed of burying people that I love is uh, the moment when the coffin is in the ground and the first handful of earth is thrown on top of it. I think of burying my grandma, my uncle, and my cousin that way. And that's the moment I find hardest because... When the earth hits the coffin, it's just a reminder to me that I, I won't see them again. I won't see this face again. And then the shovelfuls of earth bury it from sight underneath the ground. I think here in verse 7, we have a promise that actually the handful of earth that hits the coffin, it is not the final moment. Do you see verse 7? He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. So the angel is saying to the disciples who had buried Jesus, you know, they'd laid him in the tomb, they'd rolled the stone in front of it, they saw the daylight fade on his body at the end of the Friday, and they thought, well, that's that. I'll never see him again. 
And yet the angel says, you will see him. I want to say to you, that is, that's an Easter Sunday promise that you can hang on to if death is heavy on you or your household, if you've buried believers that you love and they're in the ground. The angel says, you will see your Savior again. You will. You'll lock eyes with him. You'll, you'll hear his voice. You'll be able to eat and drink with him like the disciples with one day when we get to heaven. You will see him. So there's a face-to-face reunion promised on Easter Sunday for us with Jesus, but also, of course, we do understand that the whole heavenly throng, everyone who'll be there in heaven, resurrected, will finally see people that we buried, believers, face-to-face. I think then, when I finally lock eyes with Jesus, I will finally worship him as I always ought to have done, with my whole heart and with all my understanding. So why did it happen? For full forgiveness, to go before us, for face-to-face reunion, and uh, fourthly and finally for uh, fulfillment. Have a look at the, the angel's final statement. Go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So just as he told you, that's fulfilling Jesus' precise words about his resurrection. I've got a friend um, who I went on holiday with a couple of years ago, and um, we, were, we were lying on a beach in Jersey thinking, isn't it fantastic to be on holiday? Um, I was sort of dozing, trying to read a book, and he, he says to me and a couple of other guys, you see that cliff over there? And he points just around the cove, you know, 40, 50-foot-high cliff. He says, I'm going to jump off it. And, and we said, yeah, whatever, Harry, that's ridiculous. This is such a high cliff. We, you know, a couple of other people we've seen jump off it. It's obviously safe, but don't be stupid. Uh, so I go back to my book, I'm dozing, thinking this is terrific to be on holiday. Ten minutes later, I hear this sort of yodel come from the top of the cliff. And um, he's uh, a mixture of fear and joy and exhilaration. He is, in fact, jumping off the top of this 50-foot cliff into the sea. Splash. That made us sit up. It's rather impressive when someone says they're going to do something almost impossible. And then they actually do it, isn't it? Is it not rather impressive that Jesus Christ said he was going to do the most impossible thing ever? I mean, he didn't just say, oh, by the way, I'm going to rise from the dead. He insisted on it three times in Mark's gospel. We've seen it in our morning congregation, Mark never wastes his words. So I'm wondering if Mark reports those words three times, did Jesus in fact say it all over the place? I will rise from the dead on the third day. And then, of course, he actually goes through with it. It's funny, of course, you could take this as a slight rebuke, doesn't it? The last thing the angel says is, just as he told you. Yeah, he, did, he did mention this a couple of times, and that none of the disciples really thought, oh, hang on a minute, it's Easter Sunday, it's the third day, maybe one of us should just pop down to the tomb just to, ch- just to check. I mean, he did talk about this from time to time. No one did that. So perhaps just the angel gives them a wink as he says, just as he told you, yes. But you see how this, this is the fulfillment of what Jesus said. This is not a chance accident that, oh, Jesus has been raised from the dead. This is exactly what he always said he would do. Indeed, it's exactly what the Old Testament said he would do in places like Psalm 16. I think perhaps this changes the way I think about Jesus' words in Scripture. Every time he says something from now on, I think I might just pay a little bit more attention because this guy can say he's going to come back from the dead and then actually do it. What's the next thing that Jesus says is going to happen in the Christian calendar? that he's going to come again. 
He was pretty insistent on that as well. He said it all over the place. I think perhaps I think about that promise differently from now on as well. Why did all this happen? Well, we've, we've just had time for four glimmers of light. The angel doesn't expand on them yet, but the rest of the Bible does, and the rest of eternity will. It's for forgiveness, so that you can know your forgiveness. Jesus walks from the tomb. It's to go before us, so that we might be able to say, yes, I will go to heaven. It's for face-to-face reunion, so we might see him one day. And it's for fulfillment, so that we might know he was telling the truth all along. I'm not normally one to quote the Lord of the Rings, but there's a nice moment at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy when, as I understand it in the story, that the, the problems have been wrapped up, the, the battles have been fought, and Sam the Hobbit says to Gandalf, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Indeed, is everything sad going to come untrue? You know, some, sometimes I hear people describe Christianity, either from the inside or the outside, as just another religion, just another worldview that's not, diff- not very different from any other w- worldview you might be able to have in the world. That is not true historically. Because Jesus is alive, everything sad is going to come untrue. We don't see the fullness of it yet, but one day, because of what the angel says, because of what happened on Easter Sunday, it will happen. A gefe. He is risen. Let's pray. Almighty God, who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, we thank you today that Jesus is alive. He is risen. Thank you for the words that come from the angel's lips as such good news to us this morning in a world that's scared and fearful and worried about death and sometimes doesn't have many better solutions than eating chocolate. We thank you that we have a savior who has risen from the dead. Where is the grave's victory now? What's Satan got to hold over us now? What is our record of sin when it's been fully forgiven? Thank you that one day we'll see him lock eyes on him face to face and then we'll know it for sure. We pray we'd be a people today who celebrate his resurrection and all that flows from it. In the great name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.